stand with us. Let's sing together. The sun comes up. It's a new
Well, how many, how many reasons this morning do you need to worship and praise his holy name? Do you need 10,000? Do you need 1,000? 100? Or just one? Well, let's go to the God and just that we worship who is, who is worthy of all of our praise, even if but for one reason. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we come before you and we just proclaim that you are worthy of all honor, of all worship, of all praise. That, Lord, you give us so many reasons each and every day to just declare your glory among the nations. Lord, we ask that as we are here in this moment and as we leave from here, Lord, that you constantly be reminding us of all those little things that you have done, the things that, Lord, oftentimes get just passed by, Lord, that we might see, that we might declare, that we might praise you because you, Lord, alone deserve it. And so, Lord, as we continue to worship, whether that's through song or through opening your word, Lord, we pray that you be present in this space amongst us, that you be moving amongst us, that you be speaking to us, and Lord, that you receive all the glory and honor and praise as a fragrant offering. For you truly do deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen. Stop. 
If you all don't mind, I'm going to take off this mask before my, my glasses are going to fog up the whole time. <laughs> I might not be able to read. Um, well, it's, it's great to be back with you again, and I'm grateful to be able to continue with you all in this unimaginable series. And today our focus is going to be specifically on unimaginable grief. Here, I'm going to go ahead and, while I'm starting, set my, set my timer. Make sure I stay in a good time frame. So, um, But we're going to look at unimaginable grief. And we're going to do that specifically by looking at an often overlooked and obscure story of a woman named Rizpah, one of Saul's concubines, who suffered immense tragedy and grief, but whose grief showed the unimaginable plan and character of God. So as we get started, if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel 21. Second Samuel 21, and we're going to We're going to be in verses 1 through 14. All right, I'm going to go ahead and start. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul and his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. Well, what do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, 
As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, the name there, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies. She did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Aya's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh, Gilead. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down at Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for each and every story within it. For Lord, we know that your word is like a double-edged sword and it's able to cut into our hearts and our minds And Lord, just bring us to a place of truth, of repentance, of of learning and knowledge, but also life change and transformation. We pray that you be present and you do that amongst us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we start, how many of you have read this story and passed right over it? No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those. I, I've passed right over it before. And to do so, as I've been reading through it this time, I, I truly believe is a mistake. Because we'll miss out on a lot of things, even within this little story that seems to be just a flyby type story. So let me walk us and set kind of the scene, the context of this story. So there's been a famine in the land of Israel. For three years, and David, who's newly the king now, he wants to know why. He inquires of the Lord, and the Lord tells him it's because of Saul's sin and attempted, let's be honest, genocide of the Gibeonites. Okay, let's stop for a second, okay? The Gibeonites are not just some random enemy of God's people. They were actually brought into God's people through a covenant their leaders made with Joshua in Joshua 9. Um, It's the story, if you all remember reading Joshua, where they actually sort of trick Joshua. They deceive them so that they may form the covenant, so that they may be protected, they may be safe, that they may reside in the land, that they might be the water carriers 
and the woodcutters. Okay, so this, there's a covenant here that exists with the Gibeonites and God's people to protect them, that they are part of the land. So in other words, Saul was attempting to wipe out, and I want to use this word, but it's true, ethnically cleanse a people group that God and his people had a covenant with. This is a grievous sin. Wow. It was the type of sin and injustice that God simply wouldn't stand for. And he brought judgment on the entire land because of it. To make this right, David does what we all do. Something I talked about in my sermon a few weeks ago. He tried to problem solve and take matters into his own hands instead of inquiring of the Lord. You might say, well, he did inquire of the Lord. You're right. David inquired of the Lord as to why the famine was happening. But does it say he inquired of the Lord of how to mediate the famine? No. David learns the information that the reason is because of the sin of Saul to the Gibeonites. And instead of waiting on the Lord and saying, Lord, how do I fix this? He goes straight to the Gibeonites. And what do the Gibeonites say? What do they want? Well, they kind of ho-hum around it at first, but eventually they come right back to it. What they want is blood. They want revenge. They want seven of Saul's ancestors to atone. So that's what they ask for. They say, we want seven of Saul's descendants so that we can kill them and make atonement. And David agrees. Why seven? Well, from previous studies that I'm sure you've done in the past, seven in the Bible is the number of fulfillment or completion. Just as we see at the very beginning, the very first pages of the Bible in the book of Genesis, the seventh day, seven days of creation. It's that seventh day that all things are completed and perfect. And so every time you see that number seven, it's it's a... kind of throw back to that, showing that seven is the number of completion. So they ask for seven because it's the complete restoration. It's the complete atonement that they are looking for to make things right between themselves and God's people. So David chooses seven members, descendants of Saul's family. Five of these are Saul's, basically his grandsons. And two of these are Saul's sons from his concubine, Rizpah. And these seven, they're handed over to the Gibeonites. They are brutally killed, and their bodies are left out. So, great. We have atonement, right? Everything is right. They're dead. Just as the Gibeonites wanted, now the famine has stopped, right? Wrong. The famine continues. Well, there are several problems with this type of justice. Okay, several problems. For one, this was not God's plan. This was the Gibeonites' plan. Okay? This wasn't God's justice. 
This was the Gibeonites' sense of justice. So for another, we know that this is not God's plan because it specifically goes against God's law. God doesn't contradict himself like that, right? In Deuteronomy 24.16, should say up there, it's, and Ezekiel 18.20, they both kind of proclaim the same thing, if you look on that slide, that parents should not have to die for their children, nor children have to die for the sins of their parents. Is that not what is happening here? Exactly. So there are not only two, there's not only one place in the Torah in Deuteronomy, where it talks about this. But the prophets also talk about this, specifically here in Ezekiel. But then if you go to Deuteronomy 21-23, it commands that bodies should not be left out overnight, those who have been, who have received the type of death that these seven have received. Now, some translations say hung, some say impaled, some say, I mean, there's, there's a lot of variants well, what happened, most likely, not to be gruesome, but there was some severe impaling happening with these bodies. Pretty serious stuff. But Deuteronomy 20.23 specifically says that if this happens, you should not leave these bodies out overnight. They should be buried the same day. And once again, that is not the intention of the Gibeonites. Their intention is to leave those bodies out. To dishonor them. In other words, God's heart for justice was not sought or accomplished when this happened. And so the famine continues. Now, just a little note to make here. Attempts at bringing justice that cause injustice to others, is not really justice. Let me say that again. Attempts of bringing justice that cause injustice are not really justice. And they're certainly not God's justice. So, the story rests on a grieving woman. A woman experiencing unimaginable grief. A woman who was herself treated unjustly. A woman who watched her sons die unjustly and without honor. A woman who was left with nothing. But a woman whose grief would be the vehicle of justice, of honor, of restoration, and of redemption. So let me first say to everyone here, everyone has different ways of expressing grief. So what I'm not wanting to do is make a judgment on people's grieving process. That's beyond the scope of this, this sermon. What I am wanting to do is highlight Rizpah specifically and how her grief does something unimaginable. So let's talk about what she does. Rizpah goes to where her sons are taken and finds and possibly even bears witness to their death. When everyone else has cleared the scene, she stays planted. And this is where the story gets interesting. She spreads her sackcloth, or her mourning robe and cloak, over the rock as if to make a shelter. Her purpose is to stay there 
and protect the bodies from defilement and from incurring more dishonor from the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Remember, once again, it is unlawful and unjust for her sons to have been killed, and it is unjust and unlawful for them to leave the bodies out and abandoned. Where is David in this? Sorry to be harsh, but where is the man who is after God's own heart? Where is he here? This is God's law we're talking about. Rizpah realizes she has to get the people's attention, especially the leaders, and most especially David. So what does she do? She protests. You're like, what? This is what she's doing here. She's protesting. She is publicly out in an act of civil disobedience, if you will, with these bodies trying to bring attention that what has been hap- what is happening is unjust it is unfair it is ungodly it is dishonoring and it is against the law that God has set in place Rispa realizes she has no other choice but in her grief she has to take a stand for justice, for honor, for restoration, and for redemption. Keep in mind this act of Rizpah was costly. She was out there for what most scholars believe was five to seven months. Not hours, not days, but months. Surrounded by the remains of her dead children. I'm sorry to be gruesome. This is what the story is about. Like, this is a woman who is committed. She's surrounded by their remains. She's spending for herself. And she's fighting off wild beasts. In her grief, she is incredibly committed. She is incredibly persistent. And she had faith that through her actions, God would move and justice would be done. That truly is unimaginable, right? And what's more unimaginable is that this actually works. David hears of Rispa's grief-filled protest and is moved to action. Assumedly, hopefully, he realizes that he is in the wrong by allowing this dishonor to happen to these seven innocent men And immediately he went to gather the remains of Saul and Jonathan and then the seven men of Rizpah, or the seven men Rizpah had protected. It was after justice was brought to this injustice and these men honor, their honor was restored that God brought restoration and redemption to the entire land by ending the famine. Okay? The famine doesn't end when they're killed. It ends once the honor and the justice is restored. Now, as I mentioned before, this is not your typical dealing with grief sermon. 
And so for that, I apologize. The reality is that this is not your normal story either. Grief is difficult to process for anyone who has lost a loved one. Some of you here or listening at home are possibly in the grieving process. And believe me, all loss and grief is unimaginable. But this story points to something different. It points to how grief can sometimes be the vehicle that leads to justice, restoration, and redemption. So with that said, I can't help but think of our current cultural moments. Over the last month and a half, our country has been in a state of turmoil over the George Floyd murder. There have been public displays of grief in many different forms, especially with continued protests on racial equality. In my view, we are in and have been in a RISPA-type moment where our black and brown brothers and sisters are waiting and waiting with public displays of grief to try to find justice and equality. The question remains, How are we and our leaders going to respond? My hope is that we respond like David and realize that when justice is given and honor restored, so also can we find restoration and redemption as an entire society. We have to realize that a peaceful protest is not only okay as followers of Jesus, but sometimes what we need to do as we seek to partner with God to bring justice and redemption to a very broken, divided, and lost culture and society. So, how do we allow this unimaginable grief to inspire us? What can we learn from it? What are the takeaways? For me, there are three things that we can kind of take away and learn from this story. For one, we need to realize that we often can cause grief or make things worse when we seek human solutions to problems rather than waiting and inquiring with God. You know, we talked about that with Abraham several weeks ago, but this is one of the things we see here with David, too. He's trying to problem solve. He's trying to take matters into his own hands. He doesn't inquire of God about how to make it right. And what he ends up doing is making things wrong. Once again, you can't bring justice by causing other injustice. It's not the way God's economy of justice works. So, I want to encourage you to start seeking God's advice to solve your problems rather than yourselves, like your own advice, or others. Seek God's. Take the time to seek Him. Another takeaway is that we need to learn how to grieve and suffer alongside our brothers and sisters who are publicly or privately expressing their grief. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.26, if one part of the body suffers, all parts suffer with it. 
How well do you suffer with those who are suffering? I want to encourage you this week, find someone who is suffering and learn from them. Suffer with them. Take the time. Finally, we need to realize that God can use our grief to bring restoration and redemption. And I know that sounds odd, but we do see that here in this story with Rizpah. God can redeem our grief on both large and small scales. That's not to take away from the loss or the grief, but it's just that we can see and we know that we serve a God who can bring good even out of the hardest evil. Rizpah's unimaginable grief helps bring restoration of relationship. It brings honor to dishonor. And it brings God's redemption to the land. And here's the truly unimaginable part. That restoration and redemption for the land is still possible for us today. You know how I know that? Here's why. 2,000 years ago, another mom watched and grieved her son as he was falsely arrested, accused, beaten, and ultimately killed on a cross without honor for all to see. But that unimaginable grief after three days was turned to joy. As that son overcame death, he overcame injustice, he overcame dishonor, and he brought restoration and redemption, not simply to himself, but to all things. This man's name was and is Jesus. And his death and resurrection bring redemption to all grief. When we partner with this son who was killed, nothing, and I repeat, nothing is beyond redemption. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just recognize that what you did for us brought immense grief, especially at first to those who are around you. Lord, your death probably didn't make sense to so many and just brought incredible sadness and loss. But Lord, you show us that there is redemption You show us that when we experience grief, that, Lord, you can do even unimaginable things with that grief. That, Lord, you can use that grief as a way of bringing justice and honor and restoration and redemption. Lord, I pray for each of us. Lord, that we learn to hear and see the injustice around us that we learn to bring honor, that we learn to partner with You, Lord, that we learn to not solve problems by our own wisdom, but by Yours. And Lord, may we be people who stand on the death and resurrection of You, Jesus, declaring that all is possible through You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.